This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. Welcome, everyone, to the latest episode of Scholarly, the podcast brought to you by the ATS Scholar Journal and the ATS section on medical education. I'm your podcaster, Deepak Pradhan, a pulmonary critical care attending at New York University and associate program director there. And today, I'll be interviewing Whitney Gannon on her recent ATS Scholar Innovations article entitled Rapid Training in Extracorporeal Membrane Oxygenation for a Large Health System. Whitney is an advanced practice registered nurse in the Department of Pulmonary, Allergy, and Critical Care Medicine at Vanderbilt University Medical Center in Nashville, Tennessee, and the Director of Quality and Education for the Vanderbilt Extracorporeal Life Support Program. She has published a number of clinically relevant papers on ECMO and extracorporeal life support. Whitney, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Fantastic. Let's dive in. Whitney, can you tell us a little bit about your background and the path by which you became involved with ECMO and then ECMO education? Sure, absolutely. Um, So prior to my time here at Vanderbilt University, I uh, functioned as an acute care nurse practitioner at Columbia University uh, Medical Center in New York. Um, And I was housed in the medical ICU where the adult um, respiratory failure patients uh, with ECMO were cared for. And there I was exposed to a very high volume of ARDS patients requiring ECMO, but also bridge to transplant patients, post-lung transplant patients, pulmonary hypertension patients, and just immediately became enamored um, by this very diverse population of patients and truly very fascinated by the interplay uh, of the patient and the circuit physiology and often the ventilator physiology as well, and energized by kind of this vast unexplored territory and and how little we knew. Uh, And I was very naturally inquisitive uh, about ECMO from the beginning and these patients and just kind of found myself constantly asking questions. And, you know, after a couple of years of my time at Columbia, I got involved in clinical research. and I was you know, fortunate to have, to have a number of outstanding mentors that continued to really fuel my energy for this. One of my mentors at Columbia, Matt Paquetta, uh, he was the co-director of the Adult um, Respiratory Failure Program at Columbia um, and thoracic surgeon, had moved to Vanderbilt Medical Center to sort of build out their advanced lung disease and lung transplant program. And essentially, I was recruited by him and the institution uh, to help basically take the ECMO program that existed at Vanderbilt which was a model sort of managed by a select number of anesthesiologists, expert in ECMO, um, in a single cardiovascular ICU to a care model in which ECMO was also provided um, in the medical ICU, trauma ICU, um, kind of determined by the patient's indication for ECMO. Um, And really my main focus having a pulmonary and critical care background was, you know, the transition of ECMO into the medical ICU in particular, which was a very big lift and a very big transition for the institution. Um, And so, you know, naturally, the first kind of pragmatic step was education. Um, And this was, you know, I, I did plenty of bedside education and, and lectures and things like this at Columbia University, but I'll tell you, this is a muscle that I didn't I hadn't really stretched, um, definitely dabbled in research, but this was new to me. And it was very clear that the only way to provide care for ECMO patients safely and effectively, it all starts with education. And so I did a real deep dive into, um, you know, how to become an educator and, um, 
So that's kind of where it all began. And so I've been at Vanderbilt now for two years um, and half my time is clinical and, and half my time is related to education and research. And since February of 2019, ECMO has kind of su successfully functioned in the CVICU, the medical ICU, the trauma ICU, and now the COVID ICU. And so, um, you know, we've been able to make that tr transition. And I do believe it was related to this kind of rapid, intensive and hyper-focused training that we had to provide. Now, that sounds amazing. I love hearing about, you know, different individuals' pathways towards success, you know, and so it's, it's fantastic. I meet so many different people who are doing so many great things, and people come about it in different, different ways and different backgrounds, and, you know, throughout what you're saying, it, uh, I could just hear, like, passion, you know, for both uh, kind of ECMO and this type of uh, patient population and disease process, but also uh, with education. And uh, yeah, I mean, you know, I think we're, we're preaching to the choir with a lot of our listeners in terms of, you know, we all believe that education is kind of the silver bullet for so much. Um, fantastic. So, you know, it really sounded like the crux of this project was this rapid deployment of an ECMO training program for clinicians at Vanderbilt. And you were kind of speaking about that transition from a select group to then a larger uh, group and out into the medical ICU community. And I guess, what was the need? You know, why was it, why was there a need to change that prior model? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I would say it, it did coincide with um, a real intentional build out of our advanced lung disease program and lung transplant program. So the expectation of having a higher number of respiratory failure patients um, with a distinct sort of specialty uh, that was necessary. And I think for um, we were going to see more kind of creative, innovative um, indications for respiratory ECMO and felt, you know, it's important to have in our minds to have, you know, ECMO sort of integrate into, into usual critical care, kind of give this tool to those who are expert in what they do. And, um, you know, and so that was sort of our, our philosophy behind it and just the overall need for these and we expected to see a higher number of these patients. And so, you know, it would have been very challenging to have these types of patients in the CVICU, you know, where cardiac surgery patients, um, you know, are more likely to be. So that was sort of the need um, for our institution at the time. Yeah, and it's so prescient now with COVID and the explosion of, need, you know, respiratory failure and need for VV ECMO. Uh, I couldn't imagine it all being contained within uh, SCVICU at this point. Yeah. And, and also these, a lot of these patients, bridge transplant, post-lung transplant patients, they can be on, pulmonary hypertension patients, they can be on for a long time. It's just the resources of the, you know, cardiac ICU, and it it's probably makes more sense for them to be um, housed in other units. Sure. Fantastic. Um, and so, you know, so now you're looking at making that transition. How do you go about creating such a, a novel training program? In other words, you know, where do you look? How do you start to, to delve into that to create some sort of a curriculum, some sort of an educational process to make that transition? Yes. So first, the first thing we did was put a team together. Um, you know, Matt Paquetta, um, Asha, he is the co-director of the adult ECMO program as well. He's the chair of the Department of Cardiac Surgery. Our ECMO fellows, uh, Yulia Tipograph um, initially, and eventually John Stokes, myself, uh, ECMO specialists, Lynn Craig and Ashley Trout, and um, Matt Warhoover, uh, our chief perfusionist, we kind of put together this team. And then I really took the first swing at a curriculum, kind of working with Matt Baquetta. And just uh, in, and so the first thing I did was use references. And, you know, I wanted to do this 
right and well in whatever evidence-based structure that we could find. And so pulled a lot from ELSO guidelines for uh, ECMO specialist education, a, a position paper by Dr. Coombs and um, his colleagues, a descriptive study by Dr. Mole and um, their colleagues uh, about kind of starting new ECMO programs and um, different types of structure and education surrounding that. I reached out to um, physician educators both at Columbia and Vanderbilt for guidance and advice on sort of the educational um, instructive components of this. And I put a lot of thought myself into how to distill down a lot of information into something condensed and hyper-focused tailored specifically to critical care clinicians at the bedside. Um, and from there, we developed this six-hour program, which was very intentional given our goal of providing this to a very high volume of clinicians, many of whom were extremely busy. And so um, that was sort of how it all kind of started, I would say. Wow. And, you know, I, I think this has a lot of applicability to individuals who are creating new curricula, whether it be ECMO or non-ECMO as well, in terms of the methodology was was fantastic. You know, you created a, a team that really kind of grabbed individuals from different, different stakeholder groups. You had, um, you know, looked in terms of the evidence base between behind the literature, essentially. And then you also networked and you utilized people who were already doing this at different, uh, you know, uh, institutions and, and kind of uh, racked their brains for, for additional insight. And so it was a very thoughtful approach. And I think this has a lot of applicability to no matter what curriculum you're, you're trying to create. Um, and so, yeah, I think this is a good point to, for you to actually delve into and tell us about the actual curriculum that you created. What was the structure of the program and its components? Yeah, so the curriculum covered the basics of ECMO. We also sought intentionally to build a culture within the institution where ECMO was active and present. Uh, we needed to provide education about you know, the device and how to use the device, but also for whom to use it, when to use it, and how to access it. And so that was, you know, one of our main kind of broader focuses. The curriculum was very heavy didactic, but interactive. We deliberately limited each class size to 15 participants, you know, and this was before COVID, um, and really trying to generate this interactive environment uh, and have people engaged and listening. And we were willing to provide these courses as many times as necessary. We started, the didactic kind of started with history and evolution of ECMO. Dr. Shaw gave a great lecture about sort of why ECMO matters broadly and our intention for ECMO at Vanderbilt. Um, and then we covered ECMO circuit physiology, uh, configurations, indications and selection criteria, and then ECMO and respiratory failure primarily focused on ARDS uh, since it's pretty most common, I would say, and then ECMO and cardiogenic shock, weaning, decannulation, and post-decannulation. This was followed by uh, small group exercises, basically rotating stations uh, where um, ECMO specialists and perfusion would review circuit components, and we um, had eventually had started using cardio helps, and so we had we're, we're using both of these um, circuits to demonstrate these things, ECMO circuits emergencies, low fidelity simulation, uh, and interactive case studies. Yeah, I mean, uh, I love the listing of the different, you know, didactic components that you had. It was a very good fundamental list, you know, of kind of the nuts and bolts that people need to understand. I find that historical lectures 
also tend to be pretty inspiring because you kind of see where we started, <laughs> where it could take up a whole room to then where it's come to now. Uh, and so I think that can be very inspiring to patient population. And so if I understand, you know, those are the, the lectures. And so this was a total six hour uh, course, correct? How much of that time was actually simulation based or was just simulated cases that you talked through? Yeah. Uh, so in, 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 you know, admittedly, our course is very heavy and didactic. I would say it was probably the first four hours with a lunch break and then two hours of the sort of hands-on or simulation small group um, stuff. Perfect. And so, you know, who did you aspire this um, intervention to, to target? Like who was the target learner population for this uh, program? Yeah, so it was truly all critical care clinicians who were providing care to ECMO patients. So it would be, you know, in the, in the medical ICU, in the pulmonary department, it was um, the pulmonologists who were assigned or elected as ECMO attendings. Uh, it was all of our pulmonary and critical care fellows, um, and then the nurse practitioners uh, in the medical ICU who would be taking care of these patients. In the cardiac, um, in the cardiovascular ICU, it was anesthesiologists, fellows, and again, the nurse practitioners taking care of the patients. And same with the trauma ICU, the attendings, um, fellows, and nurse practitioners. And then we had um, all of our cardiothoracic fellows who are not necessarily critical care clinicians at the bedside, but were felt to really benefit from, from a course like this. That was great. It's an expansive group and a different, different uh, disciplines as well. And uh, was this mandatory for this learner group or was it th that they could choose? Yeah, so the ins I will say the institution was very supportive with this endeavor and really pushed and, and required faculty and really these all these clinicians that who were going to be providing care to ECMO patients to attend and our attendance was our, it was very well attended. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that, you know, it's very important, especially if you're going to standardize and create this as a culture to have something like this uh, that everyone goes through, you know, and there's a lot of downstream benefits as well of them working together and so forth. And so how many people have gone through this program at this point? Yeah, so during the study period, there were 97 patients that uh, and participants. That was from October to January, to October 2018 to January 2019. Um, since that time, it was sort of, I almost think of it as we did this bolus dose of education and then sort of more maintenance where we were only doing them one once a month or once every other month. And since that time period, we took a little bit of a break in COVID, um, but we've offered 12 courses since that time. And so a total of about 170 clinicians have gone through the six hour course. The last two courses we did for the first time was via Zoom and the hands-on we're kind of doing separately in even smaller groups, um, you know, due to the pandemic. Absolutely. Yeah, no, they're right. These, a lot of people had uh, educational programs that had to be now remolded into yeah. Zoom formats, smaller, smaller group sizes. So fantastic that you were able to make that uh, adjustment. And 170, that's, that's fantastic. Um, and I guess the, on the other side of things, who are the instructors, who are the faculty for this program? 
Yeah. So um, Asha, um, who's the chair of the Department of Cardiac Surgery and co-leads our adult ECMO program, he gave uh, one to two lectures uh, at each course, always the first um, history and evolution and why ECMO matters. And then Matt Paquetta um, gave one to two lectures every time as well. Um, he did a lot of the configurations and circuit physiology, the ECMO fellows, um, Yulia Tipograf and John Stokes. And then um, I gave my primary focus was ECMO and respiratory failure. Um, and I usually gave one to two of the lectures. And then um, Lynn Craig and, and Matt Warhoover, Ashley Trout were really um, crucial um, parts of our hands-on. And yeah, I was involved in that as well. Uh, so uh, tried to get a multidisciplinary um, team together so that everyone could really learn from all these, you know, we brought all, something a little bit different to everybody, I think. Yeah, so really kind of a, both a multidisciplinary learner group that was targeted and then a multidisciplinary uh, teacher group as well. Great. Uh, so I think this is a good point to transition and ask you, what were the actual results of your of your study that you found? So, you know, we've, we demonstrated an increase in exam scores. So our before our six-hour course, we had everybody take an exam and the median score was 70%. And then after the six hour course, before everybody left, we, um, we gave another exam and the score was 90%. And so, you know, it seemed like there was a significant difference. We can't interpret this too much. It's, you know, doesn't show retention um, and, and, and these kinds of things, but probably can say that in the short term, it, you know, increased knowledge um, acquisition. Um, and then it did show it, an improvement in sort of perceive it was it was well perceived um, in terms of uh, applicability uh, to safe care and and usefulness. Um, so we got a fair amount of good feedback as well. Well, that's that's great. That's always uh, you know nice to have when you spend so much time and effort on educational endeavors to see you know benefits and that it's uh, well received from the uh, learner population. Uh, as well. And this multiple, this was a multiple choice test, you know, how was it, how was it created? How did you guys go about doing that? It was 15 questions, multiple choice test. And, um, you know, initially I drafted the questions, um, kind of using leveraging questions from, or the structure of questions from the ELSO Red Book, which is a famous textbook in ECMO. And, um, and then actually, uh, Dr. Zachary, um, had a very nice paper uh, comparing high and low fidelity simulation in ECMO. And in that project had um, used a written knowledge exam uh, that you know also sort of looked at to help guide some of the questions and leaned on some educators in the hospital to help me um, understand the best way of writing um, multiple choice questions. And then um, um, I kind of worked on that with Matt Paquetta and the ECMO fellows. And then it was sort of broadly dispersed among our whole team. Everybody kind of took the test. And then um, if questions were answered incorrectly, we generally threw out those questions or, or reframed them and um, you know allowed for a lot of editing and, and uh, these types of things. Drafted a new test, sent it out to everybody. Kind of did that a couple of times before we had, you know, the questions that we were and and we were really trying to get at everything. The main, really, the main focus of all of these lectures. Yeah, um, no, that's that's great in terms of the methodology behind, you know, when you're creating these types of 
of uh, you know multiple choice testing and then willing to see you know what works, change change you know items you know uh, as necessary as well, and really getting to the crux of what they really need to know as opposed to esoteric material. I have the also red book over here on my desk actually next to me, and then uh, you mentioned uh, Bishoy Zachary, so he was actually I was his mentor when he was a fellow at uh, NYU. Oh wow! Oh, so you're yeah you're probably involved in all that. that that really is such a great paper. I love that paper. Yeah. I learned a and, lot. No, that's fantastic. Um, and, and by the way, you know, a lot of this, uh, you know, some of your supplemental materials, they'll be there in the, in, if uh, readers go to the ATS Journal, ATS Scholar website and underneath your article, uh, they can get uh, the supplemental materials from your uh, paper as well. Wonderful. So, you had this, uh, you know, improvement in terms of testing scores, and then the learners, you know, provided you with feedback. You know, were there any plans, you know, to make some changes to either the lectures, the sim sessions, assessments, any type of iterative changes that you you made over time? Yeah, this is a great question and one that we were very deliberate in addressing from day one. I think we're we're always very very committed to. Uh, evolving this course, making it better, getting feedback, and so we really have a done a number of things since our since day one one of them has been and we had one of our sort of not negative but you know definite sources of feedback um was that everyone wanted more hands-on time and more simulation and so one thing we did was cut down a little bit in certain areas of the didactic lengthened the hands-on time and instead of doing case studies which we put early in one of the other lectures we then um, actually just did a introduce the circuits and the components and then went right into more high fidelity and and we had organized an effort to provide high fidelity simulation kind of in the background and um, and then we're able to exercise that um, in some of our later um, some of our later programs uh, the other thing we did was generate just separate simulations. So in addition to the six hour course, we also have now offered for about a year, a couple of months there, we didn't do these because of COVID, but um, we've offered two hour sim high fidelity simulation sessions. And we offer them twice a month and we go through two sessions each. And so uh, we have had the opportunity to provide that for people. Uh, and pretty much even the people who came to the six hour course earlier came and, and did those two hour sessions, which was great. And then we also, in realizing that this isn't hands-on, but just more exposure to ECMO and kind of continuous education, there's a online learning based uh, avenue in, at Vanderbilt called Quiz Time. It may be accessible other places as well, but it's, you generate these questions, you have a question bank, and then they're automated to uh, learner cell phones you know, once a day, twice a day, or, or once a week, however they want them. And the rationales are very extensive um, and give you kind of videos and pictures. And so we developed 15 to 20 quiz time questions and then, you know, ha had offered that to the learners as well. So that now they come to the six hour course, they get probably higher quality hands-on time, a little bit more than they used to. And they leave with the option to have more simulation time in one of our two-hour sims and um, receive these questions once a week for, you know, as long as the questions go for, so. 
No, I really like that uh, use of the, the the quiz time to keep kind of funneling because I think anything that keeps it in their minds and their thought processes, the kind of continuing education piece to this, because anytime you do any type of boot camp, everybody learns some stuff. It's very immersive. And then they're tends to be skill degradation over time. And so anything you can keep propping that up and these extra sessions or the quiz time and so forth, that's that's great. Um, and I, I think guess- the, I mm-hmm. think the patient volume can be somewhat variable too. So yeah. especially in somewhere like the trauma ICU where, you know, typically in the medical ICU and the, C- in the cardiovascular ICU, there's usually like two to three patients, not always, but, so there's just sometimes where clinicians may not see, and, and depending on, you know, if you're on service, you're just getting that. So I think quiz time is nice for that com- repeated continuous exposure for that reason too. Yeah, great point. And so as you kind of mentioned, alluded that a lot of the initial six hour program was very heavy in more knowledge acquisition skills. And I'm just wondering what are the next steps to kind of really continue to expand into the education of hands-on skills going forward? Yeah, well, that's a great question. I you know, I really have a love of, of research and just kind of examining what we do and thinking about how to do things better. And so, you know, initially and still now really immersed in this ECMO education space, I really wanted to get, kind of study it and, and see how we're doing, which is one of the reasons why I was excited about this paper. But actually, when we started, we started quiz time and, and these these simulation sessions about a year ago. And so as part of this, we actually studied, and this was not mandatory, you know, I basically sent, you know, everybody an email and said, you know, I want to study this, I want to compare kind of simulation to this quiz time. And so, you know, if you sign up, you'll get all education at the end of the study, everyone will get everything. Um, so anyway, that the next step really was we we did this, we had, I think, 44 participants, and we um, you know, we're, we're actually analyzing all this now, but the big next step for us was to actually understand what is more effective if there are superior training methods. And so in, in that study, we looked at immediate knowledge acquisition, but also we had everybody come back four months later. Um, and so in this all sort of concluded right before um, March. Uh, so, you know, we were able to really get most follow-up. Um, so that was our next step, just trying to see like what's working, what's effective, what, how we want to like really formalize what this curriculum looks like more long-term and especially leveraging now so many uh, clinicians have gone through, you know, the internal training. Many have decided to go to um, ECMO. They're all, you know, been really encouraged to go to ELSO conferences and have, have taken this on themselves and so can actually provide more real-time education at the bedside and there's just like a nice systemic vehicle of education that's happening now which is awesome so yeah you know uh, i'm just thinking that you know one of the things we've seen is that because we've had so many more ecmo patients that there's a lot more opportunities to take people in groups and just bring them to the bedside and have some conversations rather than a theoretical patient uh you know simulation is obviously great i'm a big proponent of it but there's also that next leg of talking about it with a given patients that are in your ICUs and so forth. And so bringing them to the bedside is another another thing that we're trying to kind of push more for. That's awesome, yeah. Um, last question I have for you is really about, you know, how you credential uh, uh, providers for ECMO at, at your institution? You know, do they have to go through this course as part of it? Or, you know, what's the kind of framework for credentialing? Yeah, so we don't have a formal kind of ECMO credentialing process yet at our institution. Um, you know, we've been reviewing the uh, 
paper that was recently put out, I think it was by Dr. Zachary and the whole ECMO-NED in terms of this task force for ECMO education. And, um, and so we really um, are using that paper to help guide us there. But we don't have a formal uh, credentialing process, although we do require that it is mandatory for new clinicians and clinicians who haven't gone to this, who are going to be taking care of ECMO patients to go through um, this six-hour course. We haven't made the simulations mandatory, although most have just elected to go on their own. But um, definitely everybody who does take care of an ECMO patient has, has received this course. Yeah, I think, you know, through at NYU, we have kind of something similar where we either have to go through a local course or the ELSO course, and then a certain amount of taking care of a certain amount of patients over the course of the year, and then that'll be kind of, you know, but uh, I like the idea of having something that's testable in nature as well, whether it be multiple choice testing, OSCE testing, something that can say that you actually have learned the material off of, of these different courses and so forth. I will say too that um, at least in the medical ICU where ECMO was brand new and, you know, completely new, there was an institutional support and sort of um, any nurse practitioner who has cared for or caring for ECMO patients, maybe not all yet, um, but all the ECMO attendings as well, they have gone to an ELSO over the past two years, they've almost all gone to an ELSO conference. It's, it's and this is one of the other reasons why we did this. It's like, they could get some training immediately uh, because not everybody is able to go all at one time. And so, um, but there was a, an, a real effort to get everybody there um, as well as the internal stuff. Yeah, and now in terms of ELSO, I mean, they just had their you know annual conference uh, September 25th, 26th. The great thing was that Again, nowadays, this is all remote, it's online, and it's recorded, so I could go back and listen to-, to I even did that. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so, you know, um, Whitney, anything else you wanna share with our listeners before we, we end? Um, no, I, I don't think so. I'm, I'm so excited to be here, and I'm always, I'm always so interested to hear what everybody else is doing and, um, and how to do this better. And, and so, uh, yeah, it was really, really nice to be here and nice talking to you. And um, yeah, I'm looking forward yeah. to what comes out. <laughs> wow. Whitney, thank you so much for taking the time to discuss your successful ECMO training program with our listeners. It was greatly appreciated. And uh, I really look forward to seeing how you continue to grow your program at uh, Vanderbilt, particularly in terms of the educational components. Um, and for our podcast listeners, Whitney Gannon's article on rapid training in extracorporeal membrane oxygenation for a large health system is available on the ATS Scholar website at atsjournals.org. Otherwise, stay tuned for more scholarly podcasts coming soon. And don't forget to subscribe to Scholarly on iTunes, Google Play, or whichever podcast player you prefer. Bye now, everyone.